Hello, friends. Welcome to episode two of the Very Funny Podcast. Very happy to have you back. Uh, so, something weird happened with me this week, uh, or last week, in the week that passed between our episode one and this one. I uh, so I go to the gym. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm in no condition to say that I'm physically ripped, but I'm I'm working on it. You know, it's a work in progress. I used to go to the gym a lot, and uh, I'm trying to get back into it as a routine. It's been going pretty well. Um, anywho, it's been raining in Los Angeles for the past week or two, which is bizarre for LA that it rains this much. But all over America, the weather has been pretty insane. There's been ice storms everywhere. People are going crazy. And um, it seems to have affected here. I'm going to the gym. I have an umbrella which I believe is very European to have in Los Angeles to own an umbrella. That's the impression I'm getting. But uh, it's one of the first things I did when I was equipping myself uh, in America. I don't know if you guys are the same, but if, if I ever go to a new place or if I want to do something, I'll buy a bunch. There's a bunch of stuff that I get just that I'm supposed to have, like uh, power tools. I'll get a ton of tools and I, and I, I create that shed and that's there because you're always going to need tools um, you know, you, and an umbrella. That's basically... Right? Tools, an umbrella, and you, you can take on anything at that point. So, uh, and a manly umbrella. I don't get one of those small little ones that like packs up into a small thing and then it comes out and it's like, eh! and you can you can hold it. No, I get a man's umbrella. It's gigantic. You can walk with it like it's a cane. You know, you can assert your dominance as you uh, strut with the umbrella in tow. Things you couldn't do with this. You can't strut uh, with a small umbrella. Neither can you tow it. Uh, so it's unacceptable. So I'm walking with this umbrella. I get to the gym. I go to Gold's Gym. I don't know if you guys know about this gym. It's it's like the mecca of bodybuilding. That's literally what they what they write when you walk in the mecca of bodybuilding. It's probably one of the world's most famous gyms. Uh, you see a bunch of people there. I was there once. I'm working out, and I hear behind me a guy doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. And uh, I remember I was like, well. <laughs> It's a pretty damn good impression, guys. You know, it, it could use some work, but it's almost there. And I turned around. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, yeah. So th- that kind of stuff happens at Gold's Gym. So it's a, it's a serious gym. Nobody, You don't go there to screw around, to have a good time. You go there to, to train. And I love that. Nobody's talking to anyone. I mean, people talk and say hello, but once workout starts, the workout begins. And it's great. Everybody's really positive. And no matter where you look. Uh, you, you're going to feel like you've achieved nothing, which I think is a very good thing when you go to a gym. You never want to go to a gym, in my opinion at least, where you feel like you're you're killing it. You know what I'm saying? It, it keeps you motivated because everywhere I look, like there's Instagram models and fitness gurus and Mike O'Hearn, like all these guys that are just, it's just what they do. So you, it always makes you want to push yourself further, at, le- at least for me. So anyways, I'm going into the gym and I have the umbrella as I'm walking in, this dude who ironically wasn't even like ripped, right? Like he wasn't even, he didn't even look like uh, the gym was a place that um, he belonged to. Like he looked kind of like, he was less than I was by a bit, right? So he wasn't, he wasn't a, a, a meathead or whatever they call him. Um, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't a gym person. I'm walking in and he looks at me like, I've never talked to this guy, right? And as I'm walking in, he's like, for real, bro, an umbrella? Like a little, a bit, a bit of rain is too much. And I, I thought that was, I was like, okay, I, it's, it's bizarre, but, um, like wh- why would, wh- if you think about those sentences, a lot of them pass through where people, you judge people or you tell people stuff. And I'm not saying I was triggered or anything. I don't, I don't give a shit, but I mean like, yeah, it's an umbrella. It's raining. So I pulled out an umbrella. Like that's not, there's no, there's no kind of, uh logical reason why I, I wouldn't because it's not cool to I'm here to work out I'm not here to like take on the elements you know what I'm saying and uh I just walked in I brushed it off but man I started thinking while I was working out like it's so bizarre you don't know me right like that's a 
that's a weird statement to make, you know. Um, and it must have been because he was insecure. Maybe I put too much thought into it, but it started bringing a bunch of stuff to me. Like, how stupid is it that as as a society, there are things that we take that make life easier because that's what you should do. And then we make fun of them like that makes it uncool. Like, since when was evolution uncool? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it rained. Somebody stepped into the rain. They looked up. The water was falling on them. They're like, you know what? I need shelter. And we we built shelters. That was early man. And then early man was like, I got to go and do shit. You know, I got a, I got a woman at home. I got to get away. If we stay here too much, it's a disaster. So I got to go. But it's raining. I need a mobile shelter. So they probably started with giant leaves and shit. And then... A few weeks later, they invented the umbrella using the recently invented fire <laughs> that they had. It's ridiculous. It's logical. It's what you do. It, it, and I mean, imagine like back when we were apes, if we had that mentality, how counterintuitive it would be to our getting here today, right? Like if we just discovered fire and then like a few weeks later, somebody was like, hoo, hoo, like putting the fire together, assembling it. And he's and he's he or she they're sitting there and they're getting warm, and then the other ape comes by and he's like, "For real, bro? Fire? A little bit of cold is too much for you?" You know, with the as in they're apes. So I don't know. I don't know what an ape would sound like if they were uh, trying to be bros. I have no like. <laughs> I don't know that. <laughs> I I have no idea. Anywho. And then the guy turned off the fire and then people were like, it's cold. Can we turn a fire? And they're like, fire. <laughs> and then we would have never evolved. You get what I'm saying with this? It's weird. It's like ever since we're kids, we're kind of programmed in a way when it comes to. We want to be cool, right? Like everybody wants that. And it's uh, I've had a weird relationship with that kind of mentality because um, like I wasn't I remember when I was uh, a kid. I think people want to be cool. I think the reason that you want that is because the the fantasy of being cool means that you can be accepted no matter what you do, right? Like you can be yourself, finally, and you can do what makes you happy and you don't have to worry about it making you miserable, right? Because sometimes it's like, oh man, I love this lunchbox. I remember when I was a kid, we had lunchboxes. I don't know why those adults don't carry them. It's a lunchbox. You put your lunch in it, you go to school with it, and you'd have designs on it. And the design would reflect what you're interested in. I had like a Simpsons lunchbox or a Ninja Turtles. I had a Ninja Turtles and a Simpsons. Coolest thing in the world. And you put stickers on it and stuff. It, it, you express yourself. And um, like ever since then, it, you get to a certain age where you're carrying this lunchbox and people call you out. And then you really want to carry that lunchbox or the Trapper Keeper, if anybody knows what that is. But then you worry that this makes you happy, but you're worried when you go to school that you're going to be judged for it. And then you start making decisions based on what you think people might or might not say. You might get something because you think people will like it more. You might not get something because you think people will hate it. And we start to lose ourselves there. And when we start to think, oh, man, if I was only if I was a popular kid, then if I carried this lunchbox, everybody would want that lunchbox so I can I can be free to be me. At least that's the fantasy, right? That everybody wants to be when they, when they want to be cool. Which which is what I think stand-up comedy is is so attractive to everybody. That's why I think a lot of actors, actresses, no matter how famous they get, they always try to get back to doing stand-up. Ellen, De, Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres, biggest uh, star on the planet maybe right now, just released a comedy special. And, and it's counterintuitive because you're so successful. Why bother? Why put yourself out there? But I think because like being a stand-up comic is the ultimate romanticization of or fantasy of being cool right because you can people pay you to be you right that's like the, the ultimate level you can you can be you and people will accept it or you can be you and people will pay you to support you being you right which is like it doesn't get better than that that's like the uh that's what people think stand-up is at least right that's the uh the 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 fetish the the porn hub version that we can tune into and believe that that could be out there for us and then carry on with our lives because we have a we have a bit of a of a dream we can latch onto. It could it could have it could be me. 
And uh, it, it's weird because you start to think to yourself, oh, okay, it's the same thing with comedy. Like you start to think to yourself, I'm going to do this. People will accept me more. And then finally, you you take this journey to being the popular one, right? Like at school or you want to be the cool kid. And then when you get there, what you wanted to do when you first set out to be cool, whether it was that lunchbox or anything else, when you get there, you no longer do the things you originally wanted to do because they're not cool. Like you end up you lose yourself in the journey somewhere and then you get to the destination and, and you're not you anymore. Uh, at least most people that, that never happened uh, with me. I, I was never the cool kid. Uh, I had two lives, right? So I grew up in America and then when I was 10, I went back uh, to Lebanon. My, my family went back and I went obviously with them. But for me, my childhood was just America. That's all I knew. And um, in America, I definitely wasn't cool. Right. I was I was a weird kid. And uh, I mean, I was weird to everybody else. To me, I, I thought I was fine. I had weird habits that I would do uh, all the time. I really liked the Ninja Turtles and um, I was a big kid. I was loud. I was hyperactive and I had asthma. Terrible combination. You just get excited and then get an asthma attack. You get excited. You have, you have an asthma attack. It's, it's almost cartoonish. And then um, I used to. Dude, I couldn't even control. I, this is the worst. I couldn't control my bladder. Like as a kid, I'd wet the bed when I'd go to sleep. It was horrible. I don't know if anybody's ever had that kind of thing. But um, it was horrible for my parents. It was weird. I never felt ashamed of it because I didn't know that it was. I wasn't programmed to realize that that was unnatural. I was just like, oh, shit, I, I, I wet the bed again. And I, I used to feel bad because my, like my mom and my dad would have to come and change the sheets. And it was like almost every night for obviously a period in my life. And I, even in school, like I didn't, I didn't want to, my priorities were mixed up. Like most people, their priority is like, if I have to go to the bathroom, that's priority number one. And then they organize their life around it. For me, it was the opposite. I get excited about something and I, and I just, I just, I'm going to explode, but I'd still be in that thing. If I was playing, we go to like a, a Costco or a price club and they had the video games that you could play there. And I'd wait in line to, to get my turn. Finally, when I got my turn, I now need to go to the bathroom, but I've been waiting here for an hour. I would I wouldn't leave, and I'd just be dancing as I'm playing the game, like constantly. There's footage somewhere of me when I was a kid. We were doing a play, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just I'm grabbing my crotch in the freaking play, and I'm just moving back and forth because I'm gonna lose it <laughs> in the play. I think the worst, the most embarrassing moment probably in my life. Oh man, I can't believe I'm gonna tell you this, but this is a true story. Um, I was. Uh, in Delmar Heights, that was a great school I went to. And uh, they used to have this thing where you could get, there was like, let's say 20 students or 30 students per class, and they just had like 10 balls, right? Not the students, the the, the class to give the students. So you'd have, you know, like a, like a, a dodgeball, basketball, you'd, you'd have these different balls. And um, at, for every recess, just before we went out, uh, the teacher would choose somebody from the class. And they would choose who to give these 10 balls to. And you would, the person who was giving away the balls would always get to choose whatever ball they wanted. So it was like the ultimate position. You were like, uh, you, were, you, were the, you were the real deal over there. It was like prized. And I was never chosen. Because I, I think I was like the worst kid. I always used to talk and make jokes during class. So I was never rewarded by being the kid to choose who gets the balls. So one day... It, it was my turn, finally. And um, I had to go to the bathroom like like there was no tomorrow, man. Like I was going to pee my pants, hardcore. But I couldn't, I couldn't say I need to go to the bathroom and come back because if I, if I did that, she was going to hand it to somebody else. And I might never get this opportunity again in my life. You have to understand, at my age, I think I was seven or eight that was like that was like being chosen to be the president. You don't you don't just say I got to go to the bathroom. You you become the president. So I get up and I I take the ball that I want and I put it to the side and I start handing out the balls. But I, we I, we have to be quick here because I got to take my ball, rush to the bathroom, and I'm just standing there. I'm like, who wants the ball? Who wants the ball? And I'm just throwing. Who wants it? I'm throwing the balls and I'm dancing like as I'm doing this. Like I'm, I have my hands in the air and my legs are just slapping. One next to the other, and and the teacher, that whore. She did. She didn't even. She didn't even. She saw that. She wasn't like, "Hey, Nimmer, I'll take it from here. I'll keep your ball on the side." You know, she didn't help 
she didn't help me out. She was she she just stood there and watched. I never thought about it until now, but that's kind of bizarre that it got to that point. I got through all the balls until the last one. And I'm standing in front of the entire class. This is a nightmare situation. I have the ball in my hand. It's above my head. So I can launch it as fast as possible. And and I can't anymore. And with the ball in my head and everybody looking to see who the last ball is going to be given to. I just peed my pants. Literally in front of the entire class. And... Um, I was just standing there and everybody was looking like this is literally a nightmare scenario now that I think about it. I feel cringy like hell now, but at the time it felt great. I was just like, ah, <laughs> finally. <laughs> and uh, and then I ran in the bathroom with the ball, with my <laughs> with my ball. And then I just locked myself in there. And uh, I think the school called my mom. Then she came with a change of clothes. And by the time my mom came over and I changed my clothes, not only had recess ended, but um, I was I was back in class. Uh, I didn't get to use the ball. I was just locked in the bathroom with it. And uh, I didn't gain the ball. I gained a shit ton of uh, shame. That was pretty much it. And I just walked into class. And, and I never got that chance again. That was the last time. I think the teacher was like, "Never, I'm never giving that kid the ball again. This shit is crazy. So I, I wasn't a cool kid. I wasn't a cool kid. I was I was made fun of. Um, I was Le- I'm Lebanese. So I'd, I'd go to school with, in my lunchbox, I'd have immigrant food, right? Like people would have celery with peanut butter and raisins. I'd have like, you know, labni or... Uh, uh, little zatar manushis or, or lahm bajin, which if you probably don't know what those are, but they're becoming popular now in America, which it's dope now to have an international kind of cuisine. But at the time, this was the 80s. People were like, what the hell is this kid eating? And um, what was really cool, though, is my mom once made lahm bajin, which is basically a dough with meat on it. And it's delicious, it's like the best thing you ever had. I took it to class. And I remember for a moment I was popular. Because everyone was like, these meat pizzas, they taste like Jesus. This is amazing. And uh, parents were calling my mom up, asking her how they can make meat pizzas. So it was, it was, it was a good time. That was a good week uh, in my life. A very rare good week. But I, I basically wasn't a cool kid, right? When we left America, like that's just... I, I, and I was bullied growing up. I had a lot of pent-up like emotions. I just didn't know it because I wasn't mature enough to, to acknowledge what the hell was going on. Uh, eventually, I, I obviously controlled my bladder and whatever, but... But for a while, it, it, um, it was just, I was never the popular kid, uh, but I was always happy, but I was always like internally, I was always um, weirded out why I could be happy with something and then other people would like not want to join me. You know what I'm saying? Uh, like I love playing video games. Why is that not cool? Like these are so cool. I, I love doing this. Why is that? Like it was always this weird relationship and um, people would make fun of me. Uh, and, and that was fine, whatever. I was a big kid, but I just, you know, gentle giant kind of, kind of situation. And then we left America. I get uprooted. We go to Lebanon and, uh, and it was a disaster for me personally. Uh, I didn't speak any Arabic. I get to Lebanon. Uh, they speak English in Lebanon, but I mean, it's not the first language, especially then it wasn't as common as it is now. And I go to a school. They say, you have to repeat your year. I had done fourth grade. I had to repeat fourth grade. Because basically the educational system in Lebanon is like light years ahead of the American educational system. So like my math level was infantile. So then I just had to repeat it. <laughs> and on top of that, uh, they're just like, yeah, yeah, this American education isn't going to forget about it. Just repeat the whole year. And I had to learn French and Arabic on top of that. Special classes for like kindergarten French in the fourth grade. Like it was bizarre and Arabic. And... um I remember when I got there, I wasn't happy because I I left all the friends that I did have. I did have a few very good friends that I have very fond memories with uh, in America. I I met one of them. We reconnected at my show in Los Angeles in October. I'm actually having dinner with him this Friday and his uh, soon-to-be wife, his fiance. And uh, that was so cool. His name's Chris, Chris Kennard or Kennard and uh, shout out to him. And uh, I have other friends that I've lost contact with. Uh, Michael Siciliano, I'd love to know what happened to him. I had a friend called Bijan, uh, Matt. I don't know Matt's last name, so that's going to be a problem. Bill Gar, you know. I tried looking them up online. I, I couldn't find them, but I did find, I did find I think, Bijan, and I tried to 
to message him on Facebook, but he never replied. He looked inactive. Anyways, I remember when I get to Lebanon, I was, uh, I was excited because, first of all, I was depressed, and I was obese, and I had asthma, and it all started to get better because I got to Lebanon, I had an asthma attack one night, I had like 13 asthma attacks, and I almost died, and uh, I remember, like, I literally, I, I couldn't breathe, I was throwing up, the next day, my dad's uncle calls, and he goes, so I hear you have, uh, your child has asthma, there's no problem, call uh, this doctor, he will help, you know, that's how, kind of just check this guy out, so we call this doctor, his name is Dr. Derien, all right, Dr. Derien, Derien, and uh, Jean Derien, we go to his offices on the fifth floor in this building, and I have like five asthma attacks just to get up to his to his office because there's no electricity, the, the elevators are down, this is post-Civil War Lebanon, just getting there almost killed me, and he does this, uh, this test, he, he takes a sample of my blood, and he's like, uh, okay, come back in three days. I'm going to run some tests. Three days later, we come back. I have like six asthma attacks. We get to his office. He's like, I run your blood samples. You got an allergy to dust, humidity, and um, and something else. I can't remember what it was. There was dust, humidity, and, and something else. And I'm like, uh, okay. And in, in America, we went to the best hospitals, you know, Scripps Clinic, Cedars-Sinai, like the Mayo, like all of these amazing hospitals. They just pumped me with cortisones that were just full of steroids and I, I just bloated up and it never helped. I was always on an inhaler. He's like, I'm going to start you off with a treatment, three shots per week, then two shots, then one shot. Then, and um, you're going to, I'm going to cure you. I'm going to change your immune system. And from that time, I never had an asthma attack in my life. This dude cured me. And he's now like on the board of allergists of Europe or whatever. It was his own technique that he that he made. He saved my life, literally. Or or at least he changed it, altered it in, a, in an incredible way because I was then able to suddenly like play basketball, ride on a bike, and my hyperactivity had an outlet. And that's when things in Lebanon started to change for me. Like I started to meet people, make friends. And if anybody knows anything about Lebanon, it's that it's the people, the spirit of it that's so addictive. And... Uh, and, and I remember that summer was the best summer of my life. And then I went to school and I was like, I can be the cool kid now. And I think that was the, 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 the interesting thing. I, I, was, I had an opportunity and I recognized it to finally be the cool one, to be that kid that everybody wanted to be like. Like I could reinvent myself. I could introduce myself in whatever way here. People don't know that I used to pee my pants or like nobody knows the, the embarrassing shit that I did when I was in America. And, uh, and it worked. I was, a, I was a huge kid at this point. My mom came to school one day and she was like, why are they putting you with kindergarten kids? She was furious. And I'm like, no, mom, this is my class. She's like, what? She goes to the principal and it's just everybody was really small. I talk about this in my show, uh, Love Isn't the Answer, for those of you who've seen it, that I was like surrounded by midgets. But in, in the Middle East, we don't have tall people. The joke that I make is that because we're always dodging bullets and stuff, so we evolve to be shorter over time. <laughs> We don't have tall people. I was like a juggernaut walking amongst these kids. And um, my mom, I mean, so I'm, I'm, I was like big. And it was interesting because I was in the fourth grade, but there were kids who were bigger than me that I could physically take on. I had, I had never been violent in my life. I'd never hurt anyone, but it was weird. I remember I got to Lebanon and in the summer, this kid cussed out my mom. And I don't know why it sparked a reaction. And I, and I ran at him and I, and I, took him to the ground and I just started choking him. I know this sounds crazy. My parents were nearby and they ran in and they separated us. It was like the Gillette commercial. <laughs> that horrible commercial. <laughs> I'm choking a kid. And my dad's like, what are you doing? Be a better man. Um, but yeah, so, and I think my parents were laughing because they were like, this isn't Nimmer. And it, I think it was because I was so, I had so much pent up you know, rage and emotion from America, I, I just started kind of expressing it in a violent manner. But then when I got to school, there was this kid, his name's Eddie. I know his full name, but I don't want to put it out here. And uh, he was either in the sixth or seventh grade, and I'm in the fourth grade. And this guy was like the bully. He would walk around and he'd hit kids, he'd just punch them, and everybody was afraid of Eddie. And I'm walking and I see Eddie grab this kid and shove him to the ground. And I don't know what happened to me. I just grabbed Eddie and I slapped him across the face so hard. 
Like I, I, it was the most epic bitch slap. But like I grabbed him, turned around, look him right in the eye, and just right across the face. And I remember that my handprint, uh, it stayed on his face for like two or three days. Like it bruised up. It was, it was insane. I was a huge kid. You got to understand. Like I, I think I was five foot ten at that age, and um, I hit puberty early. So I was just like there was testosterone. I had a mustache. It was just. I just, I, I slapped the shit out of him and uh, he started crying. I'll never forget that. And I remember I didn't even know what happened to me in overtime. I just couldn't handle the fact that somebody was just being pushed around because they were small and he ran away. And the next day he was my best friend. And I, I never, I never, but that's the dynamic between men. If you dominate another guy, they become your bitch. I don't want to put it in a different, in a, I don't want to seem like it's a weird way to put it, but they start to, because you clearly dominated that relationship, it's like they then try to be your friend so that people are, he's like, you know, oh, he didn't, he didn't dominate me. I just think he's a really cool guy. So I want to be his friend. And it's kind of a, a polite way or an easy way out from just dealing with the shame that you were just owned. And I remember he was like, so he came to me and he's like, is anybody giving you trouble? Like, I'm here. I'll help you. Like, I'll help you beat them up. And I remember that moment. I was like, no. At that moment, I remember I was like, oh, my God, I'm the guy now. I'm the dude here. And I was like, no, 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 don't do any of that, man. If, but if you see anybody bullying somebody, that's our target. And I think that was the time I became the cool kid. And this might come as a surprise to people. But if you think about it, it's the more popularity means more people want to be you, right? And for me, I was the cool kid, but I was the uncool kid at heart. And I just didn't change. For me, I was like, now that I'm cool, let me share my interests with you. And um, we're playing Pog. If anybody knows what that is, you're flipping the things on the playground. I'm talking about video games. We take hats and throw them around and run after the person with the hat um, and play sports, but with fun. And there was never been, there was never any posing about it. And because ev- and I was a geek and I love computers and so did everybody else. It's just the very few that are the popular ones. And as soon as it became like a license to like the geeky stuff, everybody joined in and everybody joined in and they started expressing themselves. And it it was a weird dynamic. But at that school, it became cool to do everything cool people didn't do because we were the majority, like all of us. I remember the cool kids would they be sitting in each other's laps, you know, like being all like, yeah, and what's good. And, you know, the girls would be sitting in the laps of the guys because it was cool and they're adults now, and they're only like 13, 14 years old. It's so bizarre. And um, and I remember we'd feel sorry for them. Like me and and the and the and and my all my friends. Like I'd I we'd go up to them, like, hey, do you wanna if you want, we can throw the hat and you can run with us, and then we can go listen to Smashing Pumpkins together if you want. Like we feel bad for because we'd look at them, we're like, this is so it's so boring. It's so sad. And um and it worked, man. Our school, like, it just, it was, it was a very interesting dynamic to be the cool kid. I used to make people laugh. I always wanted to be a stand-up comic. And everybody was like, Nimmer, we love hanging around him because he's so funny. I had these friends that were cool. All my friends, all of us, we were like the cool kids. And then everybody was cool. There wasn't like a distinction. There wasn't like this person's better than the other. We started to see like everyone had something to offer. Like I had my friend Rabia who was brilliant and he was always smart, but his jokes were, were hilarious. And, the, and me and him had very similar humor. So we would team up and make these great jokes. And then we had Ziad who would be silent all day. But then he just drop one joke and it would kill all the other jokes that were made that day. And then we had George who was like, who had who used to play Mortal Kombat and all his jokes involved these fighting games. And then you had you had Carla in my class and, and she was like the girl who liked rock and metal and, and everybody thought she was hot as hell. But um, but she was still so accessible and she would like listen to our stories and she would join in and she'd bring her own stories and it became this like, and then Natasha would come in and I'm remembering all of this right now, all of these kids, we made this, we, these blocks started to come together and every year we used it, it, I don't, I've never seen anything like it, but it was just like, it was all cause Eddie pushed the kid and I slapped him that it kind of sent me on a trajectory where I could use my size to kind of just assert a better way, you know? And um, 
And it was cool because I could just be myself. And I don't I can't tell you how important that made my ability to be a successful stand up comic now that I think about it. Because when I was like, I want to be a comic, I didn't have any of the fears. But what if it doesn't work out? People are going to laugh at me. What if I get on stage and I'm not funny and people are going to be like, oh, look at that guy. He sucked. What an embarrassment for me. It was all like, what if I get on stage and I kill it and everybody laughs and they're like, that was so much fun. I want to do it again. And if it didn't work out in my mind, I was like, well, at least I'm trying, you know, like it was always about that. So I think that if you want to be happy in life, you got to accept that you want to be you uh, unapologetically. You can live your life by other people and what they want you to be, or you can live your life by you. And you're going to have so much more fun. Just let fun dictate, man. Like, just go out there and have fun. And don't be ashamed of anything. I'm not ashamed of anything. I, a lot of people find me very honest when I do my shows, and that's because I really have no shame. I mean, it happened. I wet the bed. I pissed my pants in front of the school. Dude, if I think about it, I can think of... I had so many cringe moments in my life. Oh, and with women, I was horrible. I was the worst with women. I was so bad with women. You know those cringe moments that haunt you sometimes when it's night and you're just sitting and, oh, I'm getting heartburn just thinking about it right now. There was this girl, I remember when I went to university, even in university, I was terrible with women. I go to university, there was this girl that was so fine, dude, and everybody wanted to be with this chick. And... um and nobody, nobody even dared talk to her. She's so beautiful. And my image of myself was that I wasn't attractive uh, whatsoever. And because I used to look at people like Brad Pitt, I'd be like, if you're a woman, you go for that kind of guy. What the hell would you want with me? Right. It was that simple. Like, just go for the guy with the six pack abs and the great looks and the great personality. Like, that's how I, I thought. Why not? Why not have all of that? Why would you settle for less? Um and I always used to see women as this incredible being, and I still do. Uh, that's quite an enigma. And there was this girl, so gorgeous. And uh, she once had this project, and, and it was about something. I had a VHS tape that on that subject, like a documentary that I had recorded. At the time, there wasn't the internet, so having something pertaining to a paper you needed to write was valuable stuff. And because I had no inkling of a chance in my mind. I didn't even think she would even possibly be interested. This girl could have picked anyone she wanted. I talked to her with 100% confidence because I wasn't trying to impress her. I wasn't nervous. There's no chance. So I literally walked up to her. I'm like, hey, um, I got this tape. If you want it, really help with your thing. And she's like, oh my God, I'd love that. I'm like, sure, I'll bring it to you tomorrow. And I brought it the next day. I handed her the tape. And I think because I was so nonchalant about it that I came off as super confident and super cool, but it was all by mistake. And um, she took the tape and then a few days later, she comes up to me. This is the cringe. And her friends are in the background and she gets up and walks towards me. And it, it was only, I'll tell you when I realized. Uh, but all of this didn't factor in. I see her walking towards me and she's like, hey, I got your tape. I was like, oh, thanks. And, uh, and I, for me, that was the end of the transaction. And she goes, I, I, re I, I don't know how to say thank you. I, I, I feel like I should take you out to lunch or something. And I said... Oh, no, you don't have to do that. And I walked away. And she walked back to her friends. And in my mind, I was like, you don't have to do that. Like, no, 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 don't. You don't have to do that. There's no need for charity here. I understand who I am and who you are in this relationship. And uh, the next day I got to school, I was like, hey, I said hello. She didn't say hi to me. And in my mind, I'm like, What's wrong with her? And it was like two weeks later that my friend Rassan, Gus, came up to me and he was like, what happened? I, I go to him, I'm like, man, this girl's being weird. She doesn't say hi anymore. He's like, why am I? And I told him, like, I don't understand. I gave her the tape. She gave it back. She said, I want to take you to lunch. I said, you don't have to do that. Like, I'm being so nice. Like, I didn't even trouble her to take me for lunch. And he just kept staring into my eyes like, and I'm like, what? And he he had to spell it out to me. And I died a thousand deaths that day. And that wasn't the only time. Like, there were many times. I, I started to understand how to talk to him. Even when I started doing stand-up, I could take on a crowd of hundreds of people 
with no material. People know me for this. I used to, I used to, in Lebanon, I'd have to do shows. I started the comedy scene in the Middle East. So every show had to be like a brand new show, at least an hour, brand new, every single show. So, and there were no opening acts. There was nothing to warm up. It's just, you get on stage and you just jump in and you, and you, and you go. So thank God it was like a boot camp. That's why I can do so much great material here in America because it's so much easier here. You got clubs, openers, you can work out a bit over there. It had to be flawless. And um, I could go in front of a crowd with five minutes of material and fully confident kill, crush, destroy uh, an hour and 20 minutes on top of that of just improvised stuff. Crowd interaction, talking to people, boom, I got it. I'm a wordsmith. This stuff rolls off of me like water, like it's insane. Uh, but I couldn't talk to a girl. Like talking to women, it just, I didn't know what the hell I was going on. And uh, people were paying money to come see me. I was I was that cool, right, in the stand-up comedy fantasy. And I still was like, but I'm not, I'm not attractive. Why would women want to talk to me? And it wasn't like I felt terrible or like I was, I'm not attractive. And uh, I was just like, I'm not attractive. I'm good with words. That's who I am. Why would women want to talk to me? And um, I remember I, I started doing phone taps, which are these pranks, which made me super famous. I had one where I call up Burger King as a Japanese guy called Mitsurugi. And I order and I can't speak proper English. And it's, it's classic. I should repost that one day. And it blew up across the Middle East for lack of a better term. And uh, the phone taps became super popular. People would call in with these ideas like, hey, I got this person. I want you to prank them. But they wouldn't have an idea what the prank would be. So I'd come up with these insane ideas. We had like an Irish dating service where I'd call and try to hook these two people up using this Irish dating service. Or um, I'd call as James Benny. Benny is in Arabic. Benny is brown. So I'd call up a, a restaurant and try to place an order as James Benny. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> all these... <laughs> weird stuff or i had a greek translation service uh where my friend ziad uh who's cypriot and spoke greek was the greek ambassador and i translate for him and we'd start arguing like these were like hilarious concepts and one day this guy calls me and he goes so i got this girl i want to prank i'm getting information about her that's how i come up with the idea and he's like she just bought a mazda and i was like okay let, let me call her and say i bought a mazda because i had a mazda mazda 6 that was the first car i ever drove still i have such fond memories of that and I was like, let me call her and tell her, hey, uh, you have the gray color. And the dealer told me that that's the last one they have. I wanted that color. Uh, they said you might be interested in swapping. Uh, you just bought yours. I just bought mine. Could we exchange cars? And I wrote this down. I was like, and in that, and the joke was going to be, I'll be super charming. I'll be very funny. And then I'll tell her. Uh, since we're swapping cars, do you want to get together sometime? Maybe swap saliva. That was that was the line, which I figured would get a weird reaction out of her. And here's the weird thing. When I would do the phone taps, because I'm in this character, whatever character I would be, I wasn't talking to the person. The character was talking to the person, so I'd be super confident. So I call this girl up, and we're talking. And I'm like, yeah, we got to switch the cars and whatever. And she's laughing. I'm cracking jokes, and I'm being super charming. I'm being the me I could be on stage, but not... I could be with a woman because it wasn't me. This was this was the character. And then um, we get to the thing where I'm like, maybe we could swap this and then, you know, maybe we could swap some saliva. And she laughed, but not in the way that somebody would laugh like, what the hell did you just say? You you disgusting. You, like, I can't believe like oh, it was more of a laughter. Like she thought it was so funny and cute. And she's like and she said. OK, so. Maybe we can start with dinner. And in that moment, it unlocked how to talk to women. Swap saliva. No, I'm kidding. It was, it, it was be confident and be you and don't be ashamed to be you. And women respond to that because there's a very simple relationship. For women, if you're nervous talking to them, that automatically means that they're better than you. Why would you be nervous talking to somebody if they're not out of your league. So for a woman, the primal instinct of a woman, especially since women, uh, uh, they give birth and they, they, they mate and reproduce, is to always choose the finest mate. And any woman that's going to be in that situation is going to look at a guy and say, if he's nervous, that means I can do better. 
therefore he is not the ideal partner. That's like a evolutionary trait that developed and we've carried from prehistoric times. And I think understanding that will help people know how to approach women and to be cool. And um, so, and if, and that's why a lot of people say, oh, when you're the mean guy or when you treat a woman like shit, she responds more because any woman that has insecurity responds to a guy who treats her like trash uh, many times, a lot of girls with daddy issues and insecurities because they now realize that that guy is treating them like trash because the guy knows they're better than the girl. So for the girl to become acknowledged by the guy or to rise to that level, if she can get that guy to like her, then that means she's on his level. She's leveled up. And deep inside, a lot of us as, as human beings, we just want to we just want to level up. And we don't know that all it takes to level up is to do it inside and not through others' acceptance. And from that moment on, man, I became like, it was it was an experiment for me. I would go to, uh, sorry, let's move something out of the way because I'm afraid. Just realized on the keyboard, a notebook. I would go up to women, walk into a bar or anything, and I'd just be me. Like, hey, how's it going? I'm, I'm Nimmer. It's nice to meet you. What's your name? And they give me their name and we just start talking. I get their number. I'd go away. And I call them the next day. We date. Uh, I was never about like being a player. I was more about uh, meeting someone. But it became so easy. Um, and then I remember people would be like, man, how do you do it? I'd be like, just, you know, be you. And it's so hard to give people that advice because we're so programmed to not be ourselves. We always want to be something else. We want to be accepted. We want people to uh, think we're the greatest. And all we need to do that is to be ourselves. But since at a young age, from the playground, whatever your experience was when you did something and the reaction from people were, ha ha, it changes you. And I think if you can zero in on that moment and just single it out, and come to terms with it and cringe over it and tell your friends about it and talk about it, I think it'll empower you because you can then just move on and and then just be yourself. And man, let me tell you, no matter what you are, you're, you're cool. You really are. No matter who you are, no matter what you got, there's something about each and every one of us that makes us unique. That's just who we are. And, and no matter what it is, you're into Harry Potter, I'd love to sit down with you. Are you into guitars? I'd love to sit down with you. Do you love to do nothing? I would love to sit down with you. Do you love uh, reading books? I'd love to sit down with you. No matter what it is, I'm just thinking of random stuff. Dude, do you like foam rollers? Is it a weird thing that you have that you only go to the gym so that you work out so hard that your muscles tighten up to where you must foam roll so then you can feel the release? I would love to sit down with you. So uh, I'm going to end my... Uh, um, discussion i think about what being cool was it's a weird place to come from being from that umbrella story but i think it's uh it's important for all of us to kind of uh be happy and to have fun man and that's what evolution is it's about having fun you know um and vaccinating your children what the for real (laughs) dude it's so weird that america maybe that's why maybe because you're not cool and you want to stand out, you're like, I'm going to be one of the people who don't vaccinate my children and because I'm going to own being that part of that movement that, oh, you think I'm not cool just because you're not educated. And then your child dies. Fucking horrible parents, man. Anywho, so that's that. That's what I wanted to say. So thanks for watching the podcast. Oh, let's take... Uh, I always want to do this. Thanks so much for all the comments people wrote. Uh, this was a notebook I was I, I'm writing down. Some people asked me to talk about things, so I just want to take a few minutes at the end. Um, on YouTube, Nader Malab wrote, do you believe in reincarnation? Which was a very interesting and bizarre question I don't think anybody's ever asked me. And uh, I don't, I don't, when it comes to matters of faith, I think one of the reasons that a lot of people from all faiths respond to my comedy is if you believe in reincarnation, I'd love to sit down with you. You know, I'd love to learn how that belief has affected your life, the perspective that it's given you. I'd love to know more about why, if that brings you happiness. And uh, if I ever believe it, it has to be something that you feel, right? Something that comes from inside. Like, um, 
I think that's the beautiful thing about faith is that it can't be explained and there's no rationale behind it. And I hate people who try to explain it. Like, I can prove that God exists. Why, why would you want to prove that God exists? That, that's the antithesis of believing in something. It's, you, you need to blindly believe in it. And if you believe in it, tell me about your belief. I might not share your belief, but man, I'd love to know more about your belief. I just hate people that, that believe things because they were told. Because, dude, we used to all believe in Santa Claus. Uh, I hope there are no kids watching this. We used to all believe in Santa Claus. You couldn't tell me that Santa Claus doesn't exist. When I was told that Santa doesn't exist, it was a disaster. Well, not for me. Watch Love Isn't the Answer in your city when it comes to you. By the way, I'm going to be in Europe soon. So nimmercomedy.com for tickets. Miami, February 17. London, February 22. Paris, February 26. Amsterdam, March 2nd. And Berlin, March 7th. I'm going to swing by Lebanon afterwards for anybody from Lebanon watching. And I'll post those dates soon. Small clubs all over the place. And um, that's the thing. What was I saying about faith? Yeah. Just, I would love to know why you believe what you believe. But I, I don't know why you would want to explain it or prove it to anybody. It's your faith, man. I just hate people that, that's what I was saying. I hate people who believe in something because they were told to. Just like Santa Claus. We believe in it, man. And, and then we realize it isn't true. So always ask yourself, do you believe as in do you feel it inside? Like, is it something that overcomes you, a true belief? Or is it out of fear of the repercussions of not believing? Is it because if I don't believe, I'll go to hell? Or is it because my parents told me so? Because it's tribal, man. If you're Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, um, an atheist, Taoist, whatever you are. If you believe in a religion or you believe in a, in a set doctrine, if you're a Bushido, way of the warrior, whatever it is. Always ask yourself... Why do you believe in this? Why have you set your life on this? Maybe it's because it makes you happy. Great. Maybe it's your goals. But um, how audacious, how stuck up would you have to be? How self-centered, how selfish would you have to be to say that your belief is the right belief or the best belief? Every belief is for a certain type of person. So do I believe in reincarnation? I really don't know. I don't feel it. I, I don't feel it. I don't, I've never looked at something and, and felt the presence that that is something else. But uh, I don't deny it. I have no idea. I can't. How can you deny something? To not believe in something, I don't think is the same as to deny it. I'm just not there. It's not a matter that to me means something. And I think a lot of people would be great to be like, do you believe in Muhammad as the prophet? I, uh, I'm sure. No, I don't, I don't know. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Uh, I don't know. I'm not saying this is what I believe. But if you if you believe in the opposite... Like if you're uh, Jewish and you believe in Noah's Ark and that's your belief system, cool. Move on. And if you're going to bring science into it, it's the most ridiculous shit I've heard in my life. But if you're going to take faith into it, then that's the most powerful argument you have. It's like, I just believe that you can shut down any argument. Like, how could he fit all those animals on the boat? I, it just, it happened. You know, I can't explain it. God, you're good to go. Why not? Why not? You have the easy way out. Take it. Um, and my, I'm just going to take another one. M Makuk 12 on Instagram said, talk about the difference between crowds from different parts of the globe, especially Lebanon and the USA. I'm going to end on this because this is really cool. This is why I know that if you're yourself, you'll be great because, uh, I travel the entire world. I do jokes everywhere. And one thing I can tell is that funny is funny. No matter what religious background or non-religious background, what ethnicity you are, I'm talking Middle East, Europe, America, and I proved that in my Showtime special, No Bombing in Beirut, because in that special, I filmed it in Beirut and Los Angeles, and I cut between the two shows, and uh, nobody knows. You can't feel the difference, because funny is funny, because deep inside, if in the presence and comfort of laughter, I strip away all of your insecurities and let you be you because you're in a dark, you know, there's just one thing everybody's looking at. Nobody can see you. It's dark. And you're in my world and you can lose yourself to that world. You will become the real you. And when we all become the real us, we're all the same. Deep inside, when we strip away all the insecurities from our childhood, everything we've carried with us over the years, all the weird belief systems and things we're told to do because we have to for some bizarre reason, when you strip those all away and you reveal humanity at its core, we're all subjects 
and species of evolution. We just, we, there is a common goal, which is the betterment of all of us. We never win with dominance. We always win with one another. When the dominant force becomes all of us, you win. When Lebanon was divided and we had one person dominating over the other, it was civil war. It was chaos. It was destruction. Even when it was peace, the ruling party were taking care of their people, not the other people. There was an imbalance. It led to civil war. Um, and now, because everyone in Lebanon suffers from the same problems, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, we all have it bad. Uh, all my brothers and sisters there, when I go back and visit, I never... I never feel like I left to begin with, but every time I'm there, you feel that camaraderie because everybody suffers from the same terrible internet. Everybody has gets stuck in the same traffic. We all have the same horrible government, the same horrible leaders. Everyone sucks. So you become united and we're, there is no dominant force anymore and we're stronger for it because it's the only country right now in the Middle East that's that stable despite everything we have against going against us. It's her Herculean how powerful Lebanon is. It's a, it's a Herculean effort. Maybe I'll talk about it in detail in another episode, but I'll, I'll leave you guys on that. And uh, thank you for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast, uh, the second episode of the Very Funny Podcast. Uh, I'm going to be putting this out soon. We're working on putting it on all platforms, Apple Store and others. And it's going to take a, a bit of time, so that's coming soon. And, uh, and uh, it'll be next week on the dot, next episode, episode three. Thank you guys for tuning in. Please share uh, the podcast with all your friends. If, if it brought anything to your life, let them know. I'd appreciate it. And I'd love to see you at a show and hear you guys laughing. Nimmercomedy.com, N-E-M-R-Comedy.com uh, to check it out. In the link, uh, I'll put the link below. You can see all my tour dates and what I got coming up. So if this you're watching this video in the future, I'll have new tour dates. I'll always update them down below. And it'd be great to see you there. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.